We'll be continuing in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29 this morning. So you can go ahead and get your Bibles um, open to that passage. Imagine a young boy, okay, perhaps he's three or four, and he's sitting on a booster seat at the dinner table. Mom has prepared for him a delicious meal, split pea soup, my favorite. It's not my favorite. The soup steams as she ladles it into her toddler's bowl in all its aromatic, slimy, barf-colored, but nutritious goodness. A disgusted quiver runs down the toddler's body. Though mom's dinners are usually greeted with clapping hands and enthusiasm, tonight's an exception. It's going to be a rough night. Well, 15 minutes pass. The toddler has only stirred his soup and managed to spoil a quarter of it on his placemat. Perhaps it's time to try some toddler logic. So mom leans over and says, Buddy, if you, don't, if, you eat the, if you eat your dinner, we'll give you a cookie. Nothing happens, no result. So dad leans in and says, Hey, if you've got to eat your food if you're going to get strong and, and smart. No result. Stirs his food. Mom and dad begin to grow desperate. If you don't eat, you might starve. Nothing. Nothing happens. He's got to eat something, I think. Well, finally, mom's face falls sullen. And she says, buddy, mom worked hard to make this for you. And mommy loves you. Well, the toddler looks down at the soup, looks up at mom. Wheels are turning. Hesitantly grabs a spoon, takes a spoonful, and takes a bite of his split pea soup. Well, we're all familiar with this motivational tactic, aren't we? Right, the appeal to love, or a personal relationship, or all I've done for you. Sometimes it's used in sinful ways, though, to try to manipulate people. Or other times it's used uh, in desperation to plead with people to, to change their harmful ways. And at other times it's just used to motivate a toddler to eat his vegetables. Well, in our passage this um, time, this morning, this afternoon, this evening, Paul uses his personal suffering and struggle on the Colossians' behalf to motivate them to continue in their faith so that they would stand mature in Christ. As we consider this text together, it's my hope that we'll all grow more aware of and grateful for the kindnesses of God in calling others to suffer and struggle on our behalf, to disciple us. And as we grow in our awareness and gratitude, I hope that the Spirit will use that to stir up perseverance in us, to keep us following seriously after Christ, and to invest in the faith of, uh, faith of others. So having connected Jesus' cosmic reconciliation to the lives of the little old Colossians, Paul warned them that their personal participation in that event was conditioned upon their continuing in the faith. Stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they learned from Epaphras. The very same gospel that Paul was appointed to proclaim to the Gentiles. That's the text that we looked at last time together. Well, now that Paul has laid out a strong defense for why the Colossians should stick with the beloved son and not allow their hope to shift from Epaphras' gospel, he deploys one more tactic that he hopes will motivate the Colossians to stay steadfast, to keep walking in Christ. And that tactic is to appeal 
to his and his companions' personal investment in their discipleship. He accomplishes this by explaining to the Colossians how he suffers and struggles on their behalf, that they might stand mature and fully assured in the faith. He'll maintain this tactic all the way from verse 24 in chapter 1 through verse 5 of chapter 2. But today we're just going to look at verses 24 through 29, and then we'll look at 2 verse 1 through 5 the next time we get together in Colossians. Well, here's how I understand the flow of the passage, right? First, Paul draws the Colossians' attention to his suffering for their sake, that's verse 24, which leads him to further explain his calling and the nature of his ministry, that's verse 25, after which he reveals the hope of his ministry, verses 26 through 27. He then summarizes the methodology and the goal of his ministry in verse 28, concluding by sharing his secret for the power of his ministry, the power to be able to carry out his ministry in verse 29. So for practical purposes, I'm going to work through the passage under five headings. Okay, the first heading would be the suffering in Paul's ministry in verse 24. The second heading is the nature of Paul's ministry in verse 25. The third heading is the hope of Paul's ministry in verse 26 and 27. Fourth heading is the methodology and the goal of Paul's ministry in verse 28. And finally, the fifth heading is the power of Paul's ministry, the power for Paul's ministry in verse 29. So let's begin by considering that first heading, the suffering in Paul's ministry in verse 24. The text says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, Paul wants the Colossians to be aware that in his efforts to minister to them, he suffers, but he doesn't do it grudgingly, as if he hates having to, to, to serve them. Now, sometimes we want something so badly that we're willing to suffer to get it, like going to the gym um, in order to get healthy or just get ripped, okay? Um, but that's not what Paul is doing here. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying that I rejoice to serve you even though it means suffering. He's actually saying he takes joy in the suffering that he experiences as a consequence of ministering to the Colossians. You, so you could take that two ways. Either one, Paul is masochistic and he loves the pain, which I don't think is likely. Or he knows something about the nature of his suffering that enables him to take joy at the experience of it. We'll return to what that might be that he knows um, a little bit later. This next clause in verse 24 is one of the trickier clauses in the book that sometimes makes people scratch their heads. But it's actually not as complicated as it might seem at first. Let me key you in on, um, on the questions that this clause um, creates. Perhaps you've asked similar questions um, to this. So here's, here's uh, the, question, the first question we have. The main question is, just how is it that the Apostle Paul is filling up in his body or his flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? I kind of break that up into three questions. Question one is, how do you fill up afflictions? With a focus on that verb, what does it mean to fill up afflictions? And question number two 
what are, what are Christ's afflictions that Paul is filling up? And a third question is, in what way are Christ's afflictions lacking? Well, I'll start with giving you my answer to the second question first. Okay, what are Christ's afflictions? So there are really two options here, and after I give them, I think you'll see that there's really only one good option if we think through this together. Are we talking about Christ's afflictions that he suffered, ultimately dying on the cross? Those sufferings that atoned for sin? That death that atoned for sin, pardon me? If that was the case, then Paul would be contradicting himself, I think. Because he just said in verse 22 that God reconciled the Colossians in the physical body of Jesus through his death. That's what did it. The death of Jesus was sufficient to bring everything into a right relationship with God. There was nothing lacking in the atoning death of Christ that he suffered. Nothing more needed to be added to it. Okay, well, here's the other way to answer that, that question. What are, the, what are Christ's afflictions? They're not his, ato- that's not his atoning death. But these are Christ's afflictions in the sense that they are the afflictions which Christ suffers via his people's suffering. When God began reconciling sinners, he did so by placing them into union with Jesus. You could say that Christ is in them and that they are in Christ. In other words, God looks at reconciled sinners as though he were looking at his son, okay, accepted, loved, enjoyed. But that union with Jesus works in another way, in a, in a sense so that whatever is done to those who are in Christ is understood to be done to Christ himself. Let's look at a couple passages um, where you can see this in our New Testament. If you've got your Bible, turn to Matthew 25. And I want to read for us just verses 31, um, 31 through 40. It's that the, the judgment where the Son of Man has separated the, the sheep from the goats. Verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? And when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the uh, least of my brothers, you did it to me. Also, I'd, I'd ask you to turn over to Acts chapter 9. And just look at a couple verses here. Here is the conversion of Paul. He's on his road to Damascus to persecute the church of God, to find men and women of the way and drag them back to prison. Verse 4, And falling to the ground, Paul heard a voice saying to him, 
Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. In this last text, you can see that Christ's afflictions are those afflictions which are directed against his people. The suffering that his followers were enduring by the hands of Paul. Well, in addition to the solidarity of Christ with his people that you can see there in Acts 9, if we look just a few verses down in verses 15 and 16, you could see that God had predetermined the sufferings that Paul himself would go through. He said, I'm going to show you, um, talking to Ananias, um, just what sufferings I have in store for Paul. Well, let's consider that third question next, okay? Um, In what way are Christ's afflictions lacking? Okay, and then we'll return to the first question that I posed. This will be a little easier to answer now that we have an idea of, of what Christ's afflictions are where his sufferings are. So Christ's afflictions, how are they lacking? Well, they're lacking in the sense that there are some that yet remain to be experienced by his people, and specifically by Paul. If God had predetermined the afflictions that Paul would experience as he ministered the gospel, I think it's an appropriate extension for us to conclude that God knows just how much suffering each of his children will endure as a result of their commitment to Christ. And if we were to jump over to Ephesians for just a moment for the point of illustration, if it's true that God has also ordained the good works that we have to to carry out as Christians, then I think it's another appropriate extension to say or to conclude that God has also ordained every good work um, that we will experience in our life. And and if he's ordained every good work and every suffering that we'll experience, I would say we're on safe ground to say that God knows everything that's going to happen. He's ordained the whole gamut from suffering to good work. So Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in that there is God-ordained suffering yet to come in Paul's life. And if his good Savior has ordained it, he rejoices to experience it. Now we're in a good position to return to the first question. How is Paul filling up these afflictions? How is Paul filling up Christ's afflictions? Well, Paul is filling up the afflictions directed against Christ and his people that yet remain to be experienced in that he's experiencing his share. He's experiencing his share. If there is a predetermined amount of suffering that Jesus has for Paul to experience in his ministry of the gospel, then when Paul suffers in that pursuit, he's just completing his allotted portion of the suffering for Christ. But how can Paul take joy in this suffering? He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sakes. He doesn't spell out the reason for us in this text. Okay, but if you're interested in finding out how it's possible to take joy in suffering, the scripture is not silent about it. As you read and learn about what God says of suffering, you might be able to make some good guesses as to why Paul could find joy in his suffering for the Colossians. Here are a couple potential reasons that I, I, would, I would guess at. And again, this is not in the text. This is a pastoral note of how you could find joy in suffering based on what we see in the New Testament. Here's how, what I think Paul might have known that brought him joy. 
He knows that God has ordained every instance of his suffering. Therefore, he suffers by the permission of a good Savior. If his good Savior ordains that he suffer, then his good Savior must have a really good reason for allowing it. And so he can rejoice in his suffering. Or, he knows that God is going to use his sufferings for the benefit of the churches, to cause them to grow, and more and more people to hear about Jesus and grow in their faith, in their walks with him. Brothers and sisters, we can be people too who take joy in our suffering, like Paul. But as the Apostle Peter reminds us, one key to be able to rejoice in our suffering is that we suffer not for evil, but we endure suffering as the consequence of faithful obedience. Well, let's learn from Paul to rejoice when we suffer in our efforts to minister the gospel to others. Hoping to compel the Colossians to stick with Christ, Paul shares with them how he suffers for their sake. Right? He's saying, stick with the faith that you learned from Epaphras. I am happy to experience suffering in my ministry to you that you might not shift from that hope. That you might not shift from that hope of the gospel. Which leads him to expand then on the nature of his ministry. That's our second heading. The nature of his ministry for which he gladly suffers. And that is to make the word of God fully known among the Colossians. So let's continue verse 25. He continues and says, Of which, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known. On his way to persecute the churches, the Pharisee, Saul, was knocked to the ground in terror at the presence of the resurrected Jesus. In that event, Jesus gave Paul the stewardship to take the message about Christ to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, the text says. It was given to him to preach the gospel of the crucified and resurrected Jesus to the world, including now Gentiles. If you took this next purpose clause um, to make the word of God fully known, as the ESV translates it, um, you'll likely come away with the idea that Paul's goal, as commissioned by God, was to explain the entire message of God, not leaving anything out. Now, if that's the way we're to understand the sense of fully, um, then you might be able to say that Paul's mission could have been accomplished by just going and publicly reading the scripture uh, from start to finish in each city until all the churches had fully heard the word of God. As if the heart of his mission was just to get the word out. Well, unfortunately, I think we can misunderstand our mission to make disciples um, as just that. Just get the word out. Get the gospel out without much thought beyond that. The need to create disciples, you know, who, who, are, who are living and observing the things that Jesus commands, who make other disciples, who can make other disciples, that emphasis can sometimes be lost in our goals in mission. However, this clause in the original language says something closer to this, to fulfill the word of God, rather than to make known the word of God fully, um, if you look in the original language, it, it reads more like to fulfill the word of God. 
This is actually how the King James Version translates this passage, um, as well as the New English Translation, the NET Bible. And I think it actually does a better um, justice to the original language. Well, that's the nature of Paul's stewardship from God, his ministry, to fulfill the word of God. How do you fulfill the word of God? Are we talking like prophecy, um, as though like bringing foretold events to pass? I think all we need to do to understand how Paul, what Paul means by fulfilling the word of God is just look a little bit further in the letter in chapter 4. Look at verse 17 of chapter 4, Colossians 4, 17. He's wrapping up the letter, and he, and he says, And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. That's our same verb right there. Fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. Only here in chapter 4, it's a bit easier to see what Paul means by that. He means something like, finish the ministry. Finish, or bring it to completion what you started, what was started. So the standard Greek lexicon observes that this verb is used with the sense to bring to completion that which has been begun. That's what it clearly means here in chapter 4. So archivists bring to completion that which was already begun. And that's how I suggest we understand it back in our passage in verse 25, in line with the King James translation or the NET translation. The mission that Paul was given to the churches was not merely to get the word of the gospel out. He was also to see to it, see to it, that the message reached its intended end among the churches. So his ministry then was not merely to explain fully the message of God to the churches, but it was to make sure that they were per persisting in that message. It was to make sure that the word of God, which had already been embraced and had begun to transform people in Colossae, was able to finish its work, unhindered by false teaching or the traditions of men. What do you think the word of God finishing its intended work might look like? I think it's a probably another way to say something that Paul has already said just up in verse 21 through 23. Listen to this. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why did Jesus die? In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What's the purpose of telling people the gospel? It's in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. What's the purpose of making sure that people don't shift from the hope of the gospel? It's in order that they may stand holy and blameless and above reproach. It's the same purpose at any stage. It's all the same goal. People standing before God at the judgment, holy, blameless, and above reproach. Paul's mission was to make sure that the word of God could reach that intended goal which Epaphras had already effectively taught them, he wanted it to fulfill its goal, enabling them to stand before God, complete, not lacking anything. So Paul is going to rephrase that same purpose in another, perhaps more familiar way in just a moment. But first he takes a moment to explain the content of this word of God. 
The content of the word of God is the hope of his ministry. That's our third heading, verse 26 through 27. It's the hope that the ministry of the gospel holds out for people. Look at verse 26. It reads, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. This is something that God had planned eons ago and had kept to himself until just the right time. The mystery. But now it's all out in the open. Now it's been completely revealed what his plan for the world has been all along. You want to know what that plan is? You want to know what God's mystery revealed is? Look at verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this, mini- of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's mystery, his hidden plan now revealed, is that Christ is in the Gentiles now. Not just believing Jews anymore. Now the rest of the Gentile world can, through union with Jesus, have the hope of eternal life in the presence of the glorious God for eternity. No longer without God, no hope, like Ephesians 2 stated. But now with God and hope. I believe that we primarily Gentile believers can easily miss the import of this mystery, that, that what makes it uh, riches, what makes this riches of the glory of this mystery. Because either we're unfamiliar with our Old Testament, or we take its history for granted, or we take what it, what it, the history that it communicates for granted. Um, let me illustrate what I mean by that. Um, let me explain what I mean by that. At the fall, when Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, God could have rightly wiped out what he had made. As generations continued, death reigned from Adam all the way to Moses, God did choose to wipe out all flesh on the earth, save eight people that he saved in an ark. After Noah and his family left the ark, he gave them the command, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, okay? Same commission again. Be fruitful, spread the image of God throughout the whole earth. And so they do that, and it's not long before we see men come together in resistance to that very mission. We will gather together, make a name for ourselves, and lest we be spread all over the earth. Again, God could have, in injustice, wiped out the whole thing and, and been a good and holy, fair God because of the sin of humanity. But as we continue to read, we find that God calls out a man, Abraham. And then God expands this, this plan of redemption of the world to a family, and then to a tribe, and then to a people, and then to a nation, and then to anyone who wants to be a part of that nation. And then in the coming of Jesus, this plan to redeem the world has finally gone from mystery to God saving a man or a few or a nation to this is what it's been all along. It's been the plan to redeem all who will come to Christ. 
all who would be in Christ could be redeemed and reconciled to God. That's the glory, the richness of this mystery being revealed. As Paul continues explaining his ministry to the Colossians in efforts to compel them to stay firmly following Christ, he then steps back and reminds the Colossians of the methodology and the goal of his ministry. That's our fourth heading. But it's not just the methodology and the goal of his ministry alone. If you look at the pronouns there, he switches from, from I to we. It's the, the, the methodology and goal of he and his co-workers. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's not just Paul laboring for the Colossians. Yeah, we, we know of Timothy and Epaphras who are also laboring for the faith of the Colossians, at least. And there are perhaps others. This would increase the weight, though, of Paul's argument of keep with Christ. I'm suffering for you. To now, it's not just me. Others are also striving for your faith. So this is the methodology of Paul's ministry team. This is what their job description is, verse 28. And this is the big goal that they have for the Colossian believers. They declare the person of Christ so that everyone might become mature in him. Let's look briefly at their methodology for accomplishing that goal. They admonish each person, the text says. This is the negative side of proclaiming Christ, okay? It's, it means to correct wrong ideas and wrong thinking, to bring someone into right thinking about who Christ is and the implications of his life on, on people. They instruct each person. Okay, this is the positive side of proclaiming Christ. It means instructing, helping them learn more and more about Christ and the implications of their union in, in him, with him. And they would do that with the insight that it requires to admonish and instruct each individual person where they're at and how they understand. They do it with the wisdom it requires and the insight it requires for each person. What's the grand goal? Why are they proclaiming Christ? It's to present each person mature in Jesus, mature in Christ, complete in him. This is the same purpose, I would argue, for which Jesus died that we talked about earlier. It's just a different way to say it. Another way to say holy, blameless, above reproach before God is complete in Christ, mature in Christ. Having everything you need to stand before God, fully pleasing to him in Jesus. The word mature can be translated complete or perfect, there's, there isn't just one English word um, that, that captures the sense um, super well. It has the idea of bringing to completion. And the completion in view is standing holy and blameless before God at the judgment. Well, this is what Paul and his fellow workers strive for, and this is what he doesn't want the Colossian believers to fail to obtain. So he suffers for them. So he works hard for them, but not in his own strength. Look at verse 29. Let's look finally at the power for Paul's ministry. This is the fifth heading. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul works hard to help the Colossians and the other Christians to mature in Christ because he knows that God is empowering his work as he seeks to do what God has charged him to do. When you choose to obey God's word, 
your step of faith-filled obedience is actually God's power working itself out in your life. I love the way that Paul explained this in 1 Corinthians. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. This should fuel us, brothers and sisters, to do works of goodness, of love and faith toward others. Because as we set our minds to obey God's word, we can take confidence that he will work in us and he will work in those works. He will work through our human actions as we do them in faith. Well, over the next five verses of chapter two, Paul is going to continue to urge the Colossians to continue in their faith by reminding them of how hard he's struggling and striving for them to stand matured, fully assured. But we'll stop here in the text today, and I'll ask us some questions to get us to just consider how we might apply this passage um, to our church body. There's, there's more than one implication uh, that we could apply from this text, or that we could draw from for application from the text this morning. Uh, for example, we could focus our intention on the implication of uh, the way that God's power works through our actions. That would be a wonderful time to spend thinking about how that should apply to our lives. Um, but I, I'd like to focus our applications um, from what I think is Paul's primary purpose for this, this section. Okay, Paul let the Colossians in on the fact that he suffers for them to, in order for them to, to be mature and, and to continue in the faith. In my opinion, he does this to motivate them to continue because he and others are investing in them spiritually. Continue, because we're in this, we're pulling for you. We're suffering so that you could be mature. We don't know how the Colossians responded to this motivational tactic, though. Um, but we can ask ourselves how we might have responded. Why don't we we'll just ask ourselves, how, how do we respond when we're pushed spiritually? How do we respond to the spiritual motivation of others? That's what I want us to think about as we, as we wrap things up. How do we respond to the spiritual investment of others? Do we value that spiritual investment, or do we think little of it? Do we disregard it? When someone shares a passage that has encouraged them, uh, are you eager to receive it? Are you eager to listen to it? And oh, how is God working in you? When a parent or a friend tries to push you to care more about the word, do you balk against that? When a pastor or teacher challenges you to give careful thought to implications of the gospel for your life, do you resist those challenges? When someone says that they're praying for you, do you feel defensive? When someone attempts to steer a conversation to spiritual things, do you get in there and help them? Do you help them turn the conversation to more spiritual matters? Or are you just waiting for it to awkwardly fizzle back to something less spiritual? Brothers and sisters, do we long for people to invest in us spiritually? Do you seek out people to mentor you? to disciple you, to keep you morally accountable, to read scripture with you, to pray with you? Do you see those things as crucial means to your perseverance in Christ? Are there people 
who are investing in you spiritually, who are working to present you mature in Christ. Do you know who those are? Do you know who's doing that in your life? Do you ever consider how encouraging it is to them who are investing in you when you take seriously their efforts to push you on to Christ? Brothers and sisters, our, our faith is not our own little project. These, there are people whom God in his mercy has placed in and around us, whom he's been using and will continue to use to keep us following faithfully after Jesus. Maybe uh, that's your parents. Maybe that's your pastors. Maybe that's your godly brother, your faithful aunt, a loving friend. We need these people. Do not take them for granted. Thank God for them regularly. Would you see those people as God's personal goodness in your life to keep you faithful? Don't take them for granted. Finally, would you be willing to suffer personal pain in order to see our brother or sister stay stable in the faith? Would you be willing to suffer like Paul was willing to suffer for the Colossians so that they could be mature? Let me ask you this. Would you be willing to suffer the loss of comfort or convenience in order to disciple a brother or sister? In order to guide a younger brother or sister through what Christ has taught you? I'm not even asking us to suffer. But Paul's example would lead us to consider that and be willing to suffer to form mature believers in our body. Brothers and sisters, I pray that we'll continue in the faith and that we'll respond with joy and sobriety and gratitude to those who invest in our walk with Christ to present us holy and blameless and above reproach, complete in Jesus. Let me pray for us as we wrap up this morning. Father, it's my prayer that as people have heard this text explained that, that you will give them understanding into what your word says. I pray that the words that I've said would be helpful to that end. Um, but if, if there have been any words that aren't, let them be forgotten. Um, let your spirit make clear your word. Let it accomplish that which you've sent it out to accomplish. Let it challenge us and push us to take discipleship seriously, to be grateful for those who are investing in us, to respond to that investment with perseverance and pushing forward and relying and continuing on Christ. We leave this at your feet, Lord. You're capable, you're good, you're powerful. Will you accomplish this in Colonial Baptist Church until we gather again? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.